Hello, everybody. Welcome to a French Village podcast. I'm Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark, here with my brilliant friend. A podcasting legend. I mean, legend. Legend. She is. What What? What are you uh, on the charts now with the, 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 the focus group? What, what, what number are you? You know, I think I debuted at 12, right up between like Glenn Beck and uh, Megan Kelly. That's good. Whoa. That's good. Yeah. He's just where I like to be, all my best friends. <laughs> Uh, but thanks. You know, I was just wondering though, Ben, um, since I am, you know, obviously I'm, I'm having wild podcasting success. Uh, you haven't invited me on in lieu of fun lately. Uh, you want to come on this evening? Oh man, a real time invitation. Um, I, I think I might. Yeah. Then, then you're coming on this evening. Okay. By the time you, you listen to this, dear listeners, Sarah Longwell would have been, will have been back on in lieu of fun. Well, I've got to check with my people, you know. I've got people now. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so I'll check with my people and I'll, I'll let you know. Um, uh, but I actually have a much more important thing to talk about. So we, we teased this last week, I think, or maybe the week before. Um, but, you know, sometimes Ben Wittes is like, am I Sarah's best friend? And JVL is like, no, she's my best friend. But the thing is, in real life, I have a real best friend, Rebecca Frankel. Uh, and she just published an amazing book uh, called Into the Forest, uh, which I have, which I, I, she gave me a, uh, you know, a friendship copy, one of those early ones. And uh, I sat down to read it as a, as a, you know, as you would any of your friends' books. And I like never put it down. I read it uh, and I've been hearing about the book for years. I mean, I've, you know, through multiple brunches, I, I knew uh, the story that it, it, it sprang from um, and uh, had been through all the research uh, and still had no idea how amazing it was going to be. And the reason that it's actually an unbelievably good fit for this program is, uh, as you know, we all just got done with uh, season four, or we, which we spent in the woods with the French Resistance. Um, they spent their time in the woods based on Ben and Mai's uh, analysis somewhat poorly uh, on a play that wasn't very good. Um, Becky's book is about real people who lived in the forest uh, during the Holocaust, how they escaped there, how they lived there, how many of them died there. Um, and and I just, I wanted to have her on the show um, to tell the story of how she came to write this book how she put together all this research um, and to basically just tell all of you who love this show, I guarantee you, if you like this show, you're going to love this book as much as I did. But Becky, thanks for coming on the show and tell us, just tell us everything. Tell us everything. About your book. <laughs> well, first I just have to say, I'm really excited to be on one of your uh, star rising podcasts. Um, and also I think no matter what I'm going to do in life, that this uh, recognition of being your best friend might um, really lift up my <laughs> platform more than, more than anything. So thank you for that as a way of introduction. Um, and I'm, I'm so excited to be on here to talk to you about this show, because in fact, one of the women I write about in the book, uh, Tanya Rabinowitz, as she is uh, known as a young girl, um, but The French Village is one of her favorite shows. And she's watching it now, so I can't wait to, to get her listening. Um, so yes, yeah, so what you said is absolutely you know, spot on. The, the book took uh, many years of research to write. It was about almost six. And I have been talking about the story for a long time. Um, and the book is really about one family. Um, this family is the Rabinowitz family. It's uh, a young, we, we meet a young, newly married couple, Morris and Miriam, Rabinowitz, just as their lives are flourishing in this small town of Jettel, Poland, in the early mid 1930s, uh, they soon welcome two uh, young daughters into their family, and their lives are about as happy as as they can be. And I, I think a lot of people reading the book will recognize their own families in this. They're they're very typical in that way. And then, of course, uh, the World War II begins, um, and they're small Polish town is invaded first by the Soviets. And then two years later, uh, the Germans, uh, the Nazis come in and take over. And that's when things really start to get bad for this family and for their town. 
and what happens. And, uh, I, you know, interestingly, the, the timing of these conversations sounds about right. But uh, once the ghetto in their town is formed and all of the Jews are segregated and, and interned in this one area of, the, of Shettle, really the only place that they have potentially to go to is the forest. It's for many ghettos across this area of what was then Poland and is now Belarus, uh, is these uh, Soviet partisans who were sort of behind uh, enemy lines after uh, the Soviet army fell to the German army. And they're gathering in the forest and there's a resistance brewing. And whispers of this resistance, excuse me, start to penetrate these ghettos and people begin to think that there's a way, a way out and a way to safety. And ultimately the Rabinowitz family was able to escape their ghetto miraculously intact, Morris, Miriam, and both daughters. And they ran to the woods and it's where they lived for two and a half years. And as I imagine your conversation about this before, it was not an easy way to survive the war, not just because they were Jews, but because they were people living in the woods, running from the Nazis, running from other gangs who were out to kill Jews um, and uh, Soviets. And because it was terrible, terrible conditions, there was typhus, there was hunger, starvation, hypothermia, frostbite. Um, it was it was a pretty rough way to survive. So one of the few things that I don't love about the French Village show is the depiction of uh, the uh, resistance in the woods. And the reason I don't like it is that it is a faintly romantic, uh, you know, picture that is, you know, has elements of deprivation, but, um, you know, also has elements of, you know, outward bound with fighting Nazis, you know? And uh, my impression is that the uh, actual life in the woods in was a matter of extreme deprivation and, um, you know, was compelled by the existence of, of the ghettos and the fact that these were was often the only way to possibly survive. And so I'm just interested in your sense of whether uh, the existence uh, uh, in the woods for, you know, people who were fleeing the ghettos was profoundly different from what was going on among the French resistance or whether, you know, whether to the extent the show describes this as, uh, as, you know, having elements of fun, um, you know, a lot of rehearsals for a play, for example, it's just uh, not actually doing a service to history here. So it's interesting because one of the things about researching this particular family, the Rabinowitzes, is really how um, extraordinary, perhaps, their experience was because, of course, Morris, Miriam, and their two daughters all survived. And it was a very uh, loving family. And so the girls, as young as they were, they were about uh, four and six when they first entered the woods, were very well protected, where most people of any age were coming in. These families did not come in intact. It was uh, women who had lost their husbands, men who'd lost their wives and children, um, elderly people who had managed to escape. And so in some sense, these were not people with uh, who were extremely well prepared to survive this environment and the circumstances they found themselves in. This particular town was sort of forest adjacent, so maybe they were a little bit better prepared than people who had sort of migrated their way uh, from like really urban settings and cities and stuff. Um, it, I can't imagine. I you know I can only speak to this experience. I, I don't know about as much or really very much at all about uh, the French resistance, but it was brutal. There's really no other way to, to say it. And at the very beginning, when the Jews from this particular town in this area entered the woods, many of them were resistance fighters. They had planned a resistance in this small town that uh, fell apart uh, in the end, which you know it was very unfortunate. A lot of people were lost because of it. 
Um, so some of them did have fighting experience. They might have been soldiers at one point in the Polish army, um, but really they were craftsmen or tradesmen or, or farmers and they weren't, they weren't fighters. And so the Soviet partisans who were establishing a resistance there saw them as completely undesirable. They had no real mission or motive to save Jewish civilians at all. Um, and so it was any alliances that were eventually struck were, uh, you know, reluctant. They were often violent. Uh, the Soviets did kill a lot of Jewish civilians. Um, there are stories of, you know, them actually intervening to save them, but um, I can't imagine that it was anything like outward bound. I really can't. Yeah, I mean, like, are these guys, you know, were constantly eating chestnut mash and had time to, like, argue with each other over pretty petty things. And ultimately, um, you know, and then they put on this play that we think is dumb. Um, but the the thing about the, reading the book that struck me, having just watched this season of these guys, is, like, the stuff in your book is so the, to live, right? They had to, they had to dig. I can't remember what the word is because it's a Zimlankas. Yeah. So they would have to dig out underground mm-hmm. um, and then like kind of build beds like shelves on top of each other. And so they're jamming yeah. into these, you know, incredibly small areas that are dug underground, you know, 15 or so people. And so it's things like rampant. And this, like the show, for as much as credit as we give it for its accuracy, you immediately realize when you read something like this, like there, they didn't really deal with the fact that there was disease running rampant and they probably would have been among these communities, but like, yeah, people getting typhus uh, and they were all in these close quarters, but just like how bad too it would, it would smell and people would die. The the part um, that I've, it's going to haunt me, but like, you know, and they didn't, couldn't make any noise. And so anybody who was noisy, especially crying babies, like, they weren't going to make it. They weren't going to. And so like the, just the, the survival level of intensity, the, the humanness of all of it um, really stands out when you're in, in the book. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible that they, that they survived this at all. I mean, really, you know, not just people who are there to join the fight, but people who are just in the woods, like this particular family who actually worked very hard to stay away from all of the partisan activity because, uh, the feeling was among Morris Rabinowitz, who eventually became like this group's reluctant leader. He didn't want other families around them. He said, you know, we should all go our separate ways. It's safer if we're, you know, the smaller we are, the, the better off we are, the less likely we are to draw attention to ourselves. Um, and in fact, he said, you know, later after the war that if he had known what it was going to be like, he would never have gone in. Like it was that bad that even though they survived it and they you know, went on to live very happy lives afterwards. Um, another extraordinary part of their story, um, that it was just that, that terrible. And so, you know, to your point about what you said before about, um, plays or people making noise. I mean, a lot of people, you know, I read, uh, uh, stories and testimony, uh, for survivors who, you know, there are groups that they, they, people who reunited in the forest and they were happy and they built campfires and sang songs. And like, you know, they just, magnified the beacon of, you know, their, their, where they were. And it was a very, um, unfortunately foolish thing to do or, you know, but they didn't know that there were people out there hunting for them. They thought when they got to the forest that they were safe. Um, but to sing songs and to, you know, make any kind of sound like that was, uh, just a way of amplifying their existence and where they were. And it got a lot of them killed. What do we know about the numbers? Um, the, you know, when we think about the classic survivor story, right, it's uh, an urban or, uh, you know, small town Jew who is initially crowded into a ghetto and then, you know, uh, deported uh, by, uh, usually by train to a camp selected for work and kind of rings it out over time. Um, This is a different story, right? People who kind of escape into the woods and just kind of live there either with a partisan or resistance uh, fighting component or not uh, until the war is over, what do we know about how many Jews survived the war by by camping out in the woods? 
I mean, that's a, that's a really interesting and, and great question from my perspective, because um, it ties into just the way that I was, the way I was forced into doing research, which is to say that very little is known about the numbers. And I think, you know, we will never know how many people came in because in some ways in hiding in the woods, they were hiding from all the mechanisms of history keeping that were, you know, deployed at the time. They weren't in any army. They weren't rounded up in any concentration camp. The Nazis kept meticulous records of this. Um, and so it was, it's really hard to get a sense of who exactly made it. And then, of course, the people who perished there, we don't know ab about them. We, we won't really know about them. And if um, the only real source of this information is in survivor testimony. And so when I first started, you know, how is it that you start researching a book? You go to other books, you go to archives, you go to docu documented resources. And when I first started doing that, I found very little readily, you know, at my fingertips. And so what I had to do in order to build a, a real sort of a journalistic kind of a, a timeline to verify the testimonies and the interviews I was conducting with survivors, the Rabinowitz family daughters, um, was to listen to as many accounts as I could and then sort of piece by piece take the information I was finding. And it, it was really, you know, maybe even two years into it that I was starting to understand even what were the right questions to be asking about this experience. Um, and so what we do know uh, is, is largely built in terms of numbers, um, yes, from survivor testimony, but from perhaps Soviet uh, records that were kept later. It, it's, it's sort of like the absence of numbers that uh, gets us close. So I think it's determined that there are about 10,000 people in this part of the woods um, in, in Poland and Belarus and Ukraine and, and parts of Russia um, 10,000 people who survived, not, not the people who went in. It's just the, the amount of people who went out. And that's a rough estimation that was conducted by um, scholars and people who were collecting testimony like Yitzhak Arad, who was part of Yad Vashem, um, you know, in the early decades after the war. So, you know, one of the things that uh, I knew going into the book uh, from knowing you was that you got the idea from, because your rabbi's wife, mm -hmm. like the rabbi you grew up yeah. going, like his wife is the daughter right. in the book. Right. But what's crazy is that other people, and you know what, it's, it's sort of like how I'm watching the French village for the second time and I constantly forget about things and then I'm surprised by them again. In the book, the most, one of the most moving parts is actually in the afterword where you explain how you came to tell this story at all, right? Because your point just you made about how this is such an undertold story that there's actually not even that much information about it. But the reason you got the idea was because uh, you know this person personally and, and because there was the love story between uh, that, that sort of drives the narrative, which unless you think it's a spoiler... You should <laughs> no. tell. I mean, it's it's sort of right up front no. in the book. Right, right. It is. It's right. It's right in the prologue. So, uh, you know, my family is Jewish. I grew up going to Hebrew school. Um, Rabbi Philip Lazowski brought mitzvah me. He brought mitzvah my sister. He presided over my grandparents' funerals. I mean, the the Lazowski family is is a family that I grew up knowing almost as as well as my own. In some ways, they were just sort of always there in the background of our family events. And so Rabbi Philip Lazowski married Ruth Rabinowitz, who is the oldest daughter of Morris and Miriam. And their paths cross as children because Rabbi's family uh, was interned in the same ghetto. His family was from this town called, a village really, called Belitsa, Poland. And when the Nazis invaded, they pushed everybody out of this village and they forced them into the Jedel ghetto. And so what ended up eventually happening in the spring of 1942 is the Nazis conducted their first selection, which is like what you were talking about before, Ben, um, which is they rounded up all of the Jews from the ghetto and they separated out the people who held any sort of value to them. And they peeled off the elderly, the infirm, women without husbands, uh, frail men without working certificates, and they eventually took them away and they killed them. And it was during this election that Miriam Rabinowitz was there, with, at least at first with her husband, and they got separated in sort of this pulsating, very anxious, upset crowd because it was 
massacre. People were getting beaten. People were getting killed right around them. And so there she was by herself with her two young daughters, uh, Ruth and Toby or Rochel and Tanya. And Philip Lazowski, as an 11-year-old boy, was in the same selection. And he was entirely separated from his family and he was there by himself. And he understood very quickly that he was not going to survive this afternoon without some help. And he started to recognize people from his own village in the line going up to this one single point where there was this Nazi officer who was basically deciding people's fate based on either their work certificates or just on a visual recognition of whether or not they would be of use. And they, he said, you know, please pretend that I'm with you. I'm here without my family and no one would help him. And so he sees this woman standing with her two young daughters and he sees that she's holding a yellow work certificate and he just thinks that she looks like a nice lady. And he goes up to her and he says, will you please pretend I'm your son? And she decides in a minute to say yes. And she says to him, you know, if the Nazis let me live with two children, they'll let me live with three. And so they go through this line and they're plan is successful. And because she has a work certificate and her husband's already made it through the other side, they, they go through this line and they're saved essentially from this initial selection. And then it's many, many years later, and I won't tell too much of the rabbi's story because it's in the book, but um, uh, he's at a wedding in Brooklyn and he's sitting at a table and he talks to this young woman. And it turns out she knows the story of a woman from Jettel who saved this boy in a selection and it's a friend of hers. And so she tells the story and it turns out the story she's telling is the one Miriam saving him. And from there on, he reconnects with the family. And then the second love story of the book, the one between Ruth Rabinowitz and Philip Lazowski is ignited and, and begins from there. And I just got to say, so the way that the book is structured, where you tell that, that story, so you get a lot of all the texture in the middle of the story, but the basic framework of that is set up right out of the gate. Yeah. Uh, and so you start the book with the kind of chills that are like of just when the most amazing twist of fate occurs um, and, and makes people's lives sort of whole in a way after decades. And, um, and so, so it, it, and one of the other things that it does and I'm just going to tie this to the French village somewhat too, is that, you know, Holocaust fair in general can feel maybe even especially in this moment where a lot of people are, you know, just not as connected and locked down and anxious, um, can feel like, oh, do I, do I, do I want to read more about the Holocaust? Do I want to watch a show about Nazis? And in both cases, you know, the show is, is sort of adjacent to a lot of it. And there's, it really is personal stories and it makes what is pretty, what is historically accurate and, and, and uh, an incredible period of time tolerable um, and, and also like very interesting. And the thing about the book is that for all the hard stuff that's in there, and there's a lot of hard stuff because there's this both happy connected family at the center of it, as well as you sort of know they make it um, and they're, and, and, um, and they're extremely compelling. You never feel like it's a, it's like a wonderful story. Yeah. Like you spend the whole time feeling inc incredible about, about a lot of it. I, I mean, totally. And I don't know that I could have written this book during the pandemic and a very divisive political time in our country without sort of having that, uh, since, you know, it, it was actually comforting in a way, um, because of course, over the, the all the research and interviews I did, I, I kind of fell in love with this family because they are extraordinary people, but also this this love story and the fate of it. And in some ways, it's just their ability to, to not just survive, because that's not what they did. They did a lot more than that, but just they... They went through this period, they lived in the forest, they survived the Holocaust, and then they come out and they they do so much with their lives. And, and you know, it was, was very wonderful for me to be able to put some of that in the book. It's not just about the Holocaust, right? It's not just about what they endure, but it's about what they overcome and then what they um, enjoy. And it's their lives are so joyful. Um, it is really very uplifting. And I, I hope that people, you know, read it, come away with the same, the same good feelings that you do, because I imagine, yes, 
just diving into a show about the Holocaust, diving into a book about the Holocaust, it, it might feel a little bit weighty. Um, but there's, there's so much more to their story than that. Rebecca Frankel, uh, my, my great friend, uh, congratulations on your book. I would also just like to, I'm just going to throw a couple other things out here really quick, which is, it is a, a, I wouldn't have recognized this. I don't think if I weren't like an adult now who spent time around people who do this kind of research, the, the amount of research that it clearly took to put something like this together is nothing short of a triumph because you feel the whole time like you're there, uh, like you understand what's happening. And to reconstruct something like that, you know, it's not fiction. It all happened um, is is incredible. Um, and I'm just really, really proud of you. And it's an amazing book. And I loved it. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank and you. Thank you for joining us. Oh, I was so happy to be here. You guys are great. This was awesome. Thanks, Becky. All right, Ben. So that was really fun, but let's talk about the show. Uh, what'd you think of this pair of episodes? So it's an unusual pair of episodes for the show because it's almost entirely focused on a single plot line. You know, usually with a French village, you're bouncing between, you know, four or five different concurrent threads. But here, basically everything disappears except this showdown at the school between the militia and the uh, resistance um, and uh, the story of their surrender and then their trial becomes essentially the entirety of the show. Yeah, uh, this is, it is weird. Um, I, I was thinking to myself, well, this is a great day to have Becky on because it's really, it's not like we've got, you know, seven different intersecting plot lines to break down. There really is, they're at the school. Uh, the militia is, is, has hunkered down. They are just trying to decide between blowing up the whole block with all the dynamite in the basement or, uh, surrendering in some way or, you know, fighting their way out. It's unclear. Um, then the big thing that happens in this episode, we have a couple characters show back up. Um, the biggest of which is, is Barrio who. Welcome back. Barrio. <laughs> I'm so happy to see him and I'm, I'm excited. He's back. I'm really relieved that he's survived. Um, he's not well received by his wife who is not excited to see him, but I am happy to have him back. And I was reminded, particularly in the wake of the death of Marie, that Barrio, whom I started out disliking uh, pretty intensely because of his ham-handed romantic efforts, um, is one of the great characters of the show, one of the uh, uh, characters who basically always does the right thing including in these kinds of ep in these episodes and I'm just thrilled to have Barrio back. Yeah, it's wonderful to see him when he gets out of the car. Um he is he is showing up now as the uh substitute prefect now that Dave Cavern our other returning character uh is is uh in the in the school being held hostage uh his his strength slowly draining from his body uh only to be revived with Kurt's blood uh a blood transfusion from from uh Kurt which Lucienne doesn't want to do um but Barrio shows up and it, it's funny there's a bunch of things that happen immediately upon him showing up that I think are worth kind of breaking down first thing is I think he looks fantastic his hair is gray, but he's got it. You know, he used to have this like dorky kind of slick back yeah, hair. Yeah, he doesn't look dorky anymore. He doesn't look dorky. He looks distinguished and handsome and, you know, he's it. done well by Barrio. That's yeah. right. That's right. Uh, and he's got he's, yeah, a little silver fox thing going on. And then he, it is weird though that he shows up at the school to announce that he's the deputy prefect. And he doesn't like go check, see his wife and kid first. Like he just like pulls up in a black car and is like, I'm here. Well, uh, to be fair, he can't go see them. They're being held hostage. That's true. He, but I guess he doesn't know that. And it's just, I mean, if I were returning after many years, uh, I think the first thing I would do is see my spouse and child. I don't know. That could be me. Maybe. I mean, he's got to fight a war. He's, uh, but I just also, the contrast between his return and De Caverne's return is pretty striking. De Caverne comes in immediately, 
you know, picks the wrong fights with the local heroes, um, you know, reminds you of all the aspects of him that we don't like very much. Barrio shows up. The first thing he does is diffuse a situation that could blow up the center of the city. He does it like he shows up. He makes all the right calls. He negotiates in a in a productive fashion. Uh, turns out they've got the place wired to explode. They don't know that. He he just does it all. He's just a good old fashioned good guy. Yeah, with like good instincts. He knows that they'll trust him. He seems to, you know, he, he doesn't show a lot of fear, sort of just like walking up to the militia to start negotiating. Um, you know, he's he's pushing back in the right places, but also, you know, later in the episode where, or it's I think the beginning of the the following episode where he's sitting down with all of the leaders. Um, you know, he knows who to give a little something to, and you know, How to they just play the commies off against the Gaul. I mean, he's got like he's got good political instincts. He does have good political instincts, and and but I, I will say just one other thing about like when he first shows up that is the way. So Lucien is like taking injured Kurt like across the, the courtyard where they lock eyes. And the the thing that reminded me the most of is the way that Marie looked at Laurent, Lorraine, whatever her husband. But remember when like he showed up back from war and you could just like the look on Marie's face was like, why are you here? Uh, yeah. And she, you know, she was shacking up with Schwartz, no interest in seeing him. And Lucienne had that very same look on her face. Yeah. Although I gotta say, I, I, have seldom disliked Lucienne more than in this couple episodes. I mean, all right. I get why she makes this arrangement with Barrio and agrees to marry him. And like, she needs protection. It's 1940. She's pregnant. I get it. Marriage of convenience and all of that. It's not his fault. Right. And then he goes away patriotically to serve the resistance. Uh, and he comes back. She's shacked up with the gasping mummy. And all of a sudden, this is all his fault. She's terrible to him. And I, I just think, like, okay, you make your marriage of convenience. Like, this is the th this is what you wanted, girl. Um I don't know. I'm really not sort not. of except except Kurt is there. So like Kurt's so here's the thing. So there's two ways you can read Lucienne. And I was like, there's the the part where I'm watching her and thinking to myself, like, oh God, she hates him so much. She's so mad he's back. But then I also, when they go to have the conversation, right? They're like in their apartment and they're having, you know, he's trying to be like, Well, you know, this is what I did, and I'm back, and how are you? And why are you so unhappy to see me? Uh, she has to eventually, they don't actually show her saying it, but he comes clear. She told him that Kurt, cause he's like figuring out he's, he's, he's aware he's not sharing a bedroom with her. Uh, and so he's trying to figure out where he's going to sleep. And in doing so, she sort of says that there's somebody in the other bedroom. And I, I, I guess it occurred to me that much of her reaction could be fear as much as anything else. Like both, she is not happy to see him, but part of that could be like, now she's got to explain that she's, harboring Kurt. I guess. I I love his reaction when they finally have the conversation. He's like, look, you know, he doesn't say it this way. I love you and everything, but I understand you're you're you've got priors with the mummy. Don't get in the way of my political career. <laughs> you know, it's he basically like, you know, falls back to to all right, I you know I, I I knew that we were I I knew I never really had a chance with you when I suggested we get married, but I do have a chance to be mayor of Villeneuve, and um and you know you with the German soldier, please don't screw that up. Yeah, they're on the way that they because there's two there's two negotiations that goes on with Barrio. There's Barrio negotiating with Lucien, and then later Barrio negotiating with Larche. Uh, and his negotiation with Lucien is like, 
okay, we are going to figure out now how to do the second half of our marriage of convenience. And it is that you better be a good political wife. And I will ignore that you've got a half burned German (laughs) in the other room that you're in love with and prefer to me. Uh, And like, we're going to, we're going to, because you're, and this is, this, this, it does, um, Something that is clear in these episodes that I think counts as foreshadowing, although I I don't quite remember exactly what happens, um, is how how justice is coming for the women who who were messing around with Germans. And so, like, the level of danger to Lucien for harboring a German who is, you know, the father of her child is not insignificant. Um, and it, it's there for Hortense too. We don't know where Hortense is right now, but, but we know because Barrio and Larche have what begins as a, a subtle exchange of blackmails to each other and, and turns into a much more straightforward, uh, set of mutually assured destruction that they both voice, which is Larche knows that Lucien is harboring a German which obviously would derail Barrio's political career and hurt Lucien. Uh, and on the other side, uh, Larche knows, um, or I'm sorry, Barrio knows that Hortense was with Mueller and, uh, and, and basically is saying, I could help her in my new role as mayor of Villeneuve. And it, it occurs to you too in that moment that Larche was the mayor. Barrio wants to be the mayor. Yeah, so a couple things on this. And before I forget, a note on possible historical inaccuracy on the piece, uh, uh, on this, uh, Larches, uh, you know, manages to save De Caverne with uh, Kurt's blood because of a blood type tattoo that Kurt has that they notice. Um, uh, I think this is, this is a very weird thing because my impression of the blood type tattoos is that they were really limited to SS people, which we are led to understand that Kurt is not. He's kind of an enlisted soldier. Uh, and so the question of like what the show is trying to suggest there, whether they're actually suggesting that Kurt is an SS guy or whether they're suggesting merely that he's, uh, uh, or whether they're just taking a liberty and suggest, you know, having a regular uh, German soldier with a blood type tattoo. I'm not really sure. Um, That said, he is, uh, you know, like, he's a danger to both of them, right? Larche treats him furtively. Uh, He's, and meanwhile, this great resistance figure is harboring a uh, German with a blood type tattoo in his attic, um, you know, and so there is a kind of mutually assured destruction thing going on. Although, frankly, neither of them's done anything wrong. I mean, Kurt um, is, uh, you know, Berio is, if anything, a kind of victim of, uh, you know, marital infidelity and but he he's not the one who was harboring Kurt who was actually you know checked into that particular hotel before he showed up um and uh and Larche you know treated an injured person and by doing so uh, had access to uh, a blood transfusion that saved the prefect and so I I I actually think they're they're both in a dangerous situation, but it's not because either of them has done anything horrible or infamous. Yeah, I mean, that would be quite a scandal for the incoming mayor, for his wife to have been. So you know, not there's... to mention for the outgoing mayor, you know, that, <laughs> that he was he was you know secretly treating uh, uh, exactly German exactly. soldiers. But here's the thing that I would say that is interesting that sort of ties these two episodes together, all the plot points um, and the conversation we were just having that I think is 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 interesting and, and seems relevant to the moment that they're in in history, which is the entire two episodes are one big set of negotiations, right? Because the entire world has been reshaped and, and they're trying to rebuild it. 
and so there's the negotiation going on between the guys at the school and the resistance members who are all staked out, ready to blow each other to smithereens, but they are also going through the process of negotiating. Barrio shows up to negotiate with them. There's the negotiation between Barrio and Larche. There's the negotiation between uh, Lucien and Barrio. Uh, and, you know, there's the negotiation between Larche and Lucien and Kurt over the... But everybody's kind of like in this new space and trying to figure out how to navigate it and i and there's think that, the negotiation over the trial and the trial totally totally and and because um everything is is being yeah thrown into this new into this new space right so everybody has to figure out where they fit and there's this there's this line it's actually barrio and edmund are talking uh and about the resistance and the gaullists right because they're negotiating how their relationship's going to work and uh and and Edmund says, you know, we're going to need a, a marriage of convenience. And Perio says, those are the best ones. <laughs> it's right. a great, it's a it's great, a great Yeah, Ties the room together, really. So I think the, look, the fundamental negotiation here is over what to do with these militia, right? And it starts out when they're threatening to blow things up. It's basically a combined hostage situation where they can blow up the downtown too. But then it turns into a negotiation in the context of a trial over basically is where is being in this uniform per se evidence that you're you should be shot, which is the position of the uh government when when Berrio calls and reports on this to his superiors, um, you know, anybody in that uniform should be shot by tomorrow afternoon. Or do you have this kind of individual level responsibility, which is what, uh, uh, you know, which is what Larche asks for. You have to prove that each one of these people did something. And do, or do you just say, Hey, this is this group is guilty, uh, which is what Edmund and Anselm are suggesting in the context of a trial. Or, as Suzanne suggests, is the standard like if they have blood on their hands, we shoot them, otherwise, they should go to prison. Right. And so you're having these different uh these different visions of how how collective guilt is, how individualized it is. Um, uh, and they're starting to present all in the context of these, you know, 15 or so militia guys. Yeah. Uh, and actually, so I had written down one question. So I want to, and I want to dig through this particular piece, because to me, it's at the heart of the episode, at the heart of the show, at the heart of all the episodes we're about to have going forward, uh, which is what do people deserve based on what happens? So in, I wanted to ask you specifically, they're very focused on Albin uh, and for good reason, right? So Albin, we've seen in the show before, and he was in the woods briefly. Um, he was with Antoine, so he was with Antoine briefly. He made a choice to leave the woods. So instead of being in the resistance, he ended up in the militia. Uh, both he and Antoine, very similar paths. They're both trying to get out of the, you know, forced labor that they're being sent to in Germany. Um, he ends up on the militia. And then we see him at the beginning of the season murder two children. Um, and, and we've seen him struggle with it every since, ever since. We also see him not... He sees Antoine and Suzanne hiding out at her ex-husband's house, and he doesn't turn them in. Um, and it becomes clear as you kind of follow him through these episodes that the, the godfather guy has had an incredibly pernicious effect on him. He, uh, he, he's, 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 he's dying over the guilt and yet doesn't want to die, like is, is, is in fear for his own life. And so I think that they've given us enough information about Albin that we as a viewer going into this can make a judgment. 
Um, and they put him because he's the most difficult one, right? So we've got the leader of the militia and he knows he's going to die and we think he should die. He led the militia. Uh, then there's like the kid who just joined two weeks ago that Larche mentions just put on the uniform two weeks ago. And you're like, are we going to shoot that guy? I mean, like, I don't know what else he did, but that seems like maybe he should be given different consideration. But then there's Alden, the I'm just following orders guy. So my question to you, Ben Wittes, the complicated moral one is, does Alban deserve to die? All right. Well, let me preface this by saying that I am not a believer in the death penalty. So I, in order to have this conversation, I have to put myself in the shoes of, of people who, for whom that consideration is not on the table um, uh, in a revolutionary justice kind of situation. Uh, I don't think it's a close call. Um, the show gives you uh, a lot of reason to be sympathetic with Alban, not the least of which is that he has a very warm uh, relationship with his sister and he's clearly feels guilty and he's torn up about it. But look, this is the definition of a war crime. Um, and if the distinction that you're making is uh, that, you know, we're going to we're not going to decide people on the basis of status. We're going to decide on the basis of what people did. Shooting two children in cold blood uh, is the like what what more could he have done that would uh, and the 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 only redemptive re redemptive feature is that he feels bad about it. Well, Marchetti feels bad about it too, you know, and uh, and so I I that look there are a lot of people whose guilt is regrettable because under other circumstances, they may not have been terrible people. But under the circumstances in which he lived, he made a series of choices that made him a genuinely terrible person. And uh, yes, uh, one of them is that he didn't like being ordered around by Antoine. Well, that actually turns out to be not a good reason because he ends up getting ordered around by uh, a much worse person than Antoine, uh, who's a murderous, crazy person. And so he becomes a tool of a murderous, crazy person. And if you're going to say that the standard is we're going to shoot the people who did horrible things and committed war crimes really hard to see how you forgive him. What do you think? Uh, I 100% agree with you. Um, my objections to the death penalty, like in the United States, has a lot more to do with how it's implemented, applied, the mistakes that can potentially be made. Um, but it doesn't mean that you couldn't show me a person who has raped several people, murdered, tortured people, and I wouldn't say if I knew for sure it was that person. I would be okay with it. Like there's a difference I think between like a, you know, a sy systematic objection because of how things, um, you know, because it's, it's not utilized particularly well. And then there's a, a difference between, okay, well, what is just for an individual who's made certain decisions? And I think for Alban, um, he, he made a choice and it's a choice that, and, and the, th and the thing is, is, you know, to what end, do you execute people in this particular context? Like what, what point would his death serve? Well, uh, they are trying to reconstitute a country whose moral sensibilities were turned upside down, whose sense of, sense of right and wrong was completely inverted. And they've got to correct that. And, uh, you know, I see Larche's, whether it's a defense mechanism or whether it's... Uh, uh, you know, because of his own complicity, um, or whether it's be, it's the humanist in him that does not have the kind of bloodlust that you see from a lot of the villagers. Um, you know, I I I I understand that, and I do think there are there are in this episode, and there's going to be parts as we do suss out the justice of it all. There's going to be bloodlust that makes us really uncomfortable, right? And there's 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 vigilante justice that. 
um, you, you know is coming and that I have deeply complicated feelings about. Uh, but in this case, just Alden, I think we have enough information to make a moral judgment call about what should happen to yeah, him. Yeah, and look, you see the harbingers of the vigilante justice with a would-be mob with Servier in, in, uh, in, in this episode. Uh, that's controlled for now. But um, look, I, I mean, Alban murdered two children a few hours ago. Right. You know, it's um, like... And, you know, whatever one thinks about the death penalty in contemporary America, no country in the post-war era uh, that had a major collaborationist uh, uh, issue to sort out after the Germans left issued the death penalty, by the way. None. Um, You know, uh, and the, um, you know, not even Norway, Norway hanged Vitkud Quisling. Um, You know, these, the death penalty was a part of the justice apparatus for all of these countries. And, um, and I think there's a, you know, if you're going to be executing people, uh, there's no case for sparing Albon. Yeah. Um, you do see, though, or or maybe I'll ask it, I shouldn't say you, but I see uh, the complicated, how complicated it's going to get very fast in terms of pursuing justice with people. And when you see, um, you know, Ant- Antoine seems to be struggling with it. He, he knows Alban. He's got some context for Alban. Alban did save his life. Um, you know, these are people from the village and many of them, many people want them because they're from the village to be killed and hanged, just like they stood by and watched Marie and all those other hostages get hanged. But of course, other people know them and probably saw them as little kids. And um, and you and so one of the things that Antoine and Barrio seem to want to do is to, they're trying to evacuate them, to get them somewhere else to be judged. Um, and I think that that's one of the interesting things about this episode is, is, Barrio trying to restore the democratic mechanisms that allow for kind of, you know, a justice that is a little blinder, a little less based on people's passions. You know, he wants them to be judged and they would probably be judged uh, and given death penalty by a, a, a jury elsewhere. But he, in, but they're they're reluctant to do it by the people who were closest to it and who are angry and are looking to take exact revenge on the first person at hand. And uh, in trying to set up a reasonably fair process, he ends up setting up a very ad hoc process that kind of makes its own rules as it goes. And he's dealing with uh, a command authority that he's on the phone with that says, we want them all shot tomorrow. And so he's got some, you know, some serious headwinds. Yeah. I mean, I, and so what was your reaction when, when the, the, because they end the second episode with that, the, the commander from Dijon saying they've got to all be put them, I want them up against a wall in 24 hours and executed. And Barrio's like, we're going through this whole thing. And I think he, he was hoping he, he wants obviously many of them to be given the death penalty. Like that is the point of a lot of this. But, but he I wants also, a process and he wants, he wants a process, process that he can right. say, I set it up and I didn't direct its outcome. I made a little speech about how important it was at the beginning of the trial. And then I, you know, let the trial happen. Can I just say really quickly about the trial? Was there any part of you when you started to see the trial take place that reminded you of the cockroach trial? That's interesting. It didn't. Um, but now that you mention it, it's kind of at the same level of procedural seriousness. Well, it's so funny uh, because when Barrio is like, well, you be the judge and you be the prosecutor and you be the, def- we need a defense person. It's like the exact same deliberation they had in the jail uh, where they were like, well, who will be the judge? Who will be the jury? Uh and and yes, and ultimately, it's about the same level of uh, of, of of like sort of serious um, deliberation. Except that Larche wins the first point very importantly. He 
establishes uh, that they should be judged individually, not collectively, and that there has to be evidence about that they did something. Yeah. Um, and and I did actually love, as, as um, cockamamie as the trial kind of is, and there's banging and ringing bells and shouting back and forth, the the ability for them to, in good faith, Antoine and Suzanne, to, to hear Larche's point and say, well, obviously that's correct, but I don't know what to do about it. You know, but, you know, that... That the, the idea that people can's logic could prevail is very much part of any good judicial system, and you can see it in a in a ham-fisted way, sort of working. Uh, yeah, in that moment. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, there are. This was an organization that only the previous day or two days earlier, whatever it is had just, you know, provided security at the hangings of a bunch of hostages. So, you know, it would not be lawless to say, hey, you participated in a war crime of taking civilian hostages and murdering them. Um, You may not have been the person who ordered it. Um, uh, So I don't think the idea of some measure of status guilt there is is it's not really status guilt because you're not just saying, hey, uh, you, you, you are saying this person participated in this event, which is itself, you know, murderous. And But that said, uh, I, you know, there, Larche is clearly right. And the point, I suppose, is that the moment you allow any process it it is actually disciplining. Yes. Um, and I, I am, as much as I feel certainty that Alban should uh, be mortally punished for his crimes, uh, so too, part of what I love about this episode is that reimposing of restraint um, because that seems like a necessary component to rebuilding a civilized society. Um and and that balance between ensuring that justice is delivered so that people understand uh, that the moral order has been restored effectively versus uh, like a, an accompanying, you know, a real process, due process and everything else like that, striking that balance seems is just, I think it's such an interesting exercise to think about what people were doing in, in those years. And this played out at a, you know, at a very high level, as well as at the ground level. So, you know, the famous uh, story about this is that um, both Stalin and less totalitarian Winston Churchill wanted to deal with post-war justice through summary executions. And Churchill famously said that he thought there would need to be 50,000 Uh, summary executions of Nazis. And, uh, you know, first Roosevelt and then Truman, importantly, uh, insisted on trials. And that's where the Nuremberg trials came from. And uh, Truman was serious enough about it uh, that, uh, you know, the person appointed to be the chief prosecutor who wrote the rules of the tribunal was uh, uh, you know, Justice Robert Jackson, one of the great uh, uh, justices of the 20th century. And so, the, you know, this is a, a very local kind of dramatization of a dispute that was actually taking place at the highest level of politics and that resolved in somewhat the same way that this resolved. And by the way, the Nuremberg trials acquitted two of the senior Nazis, uh, Franz von Papen and uh, Hjalmar Schacht, um, uh, to a lot of people's surprise, were both acquitted uh, by the Nuremberg trials. So if you know if they if they let um, uh, you know uh, the young person who only put on the uniform. Uh, off, um, at least off of the death penalty, that will be sort of also consistent with 
the way the highest policy was carried out with respect to uh, to the most senior people. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I am excited that we're moving into the justice phase because it's going to allow us to sort through a lot of stuff, which to me has always been the point of the show. And to, to really be unfair with the analogies to modern <laughs> times, like, you know, who, who is the, uh, the, uh, equivalent of the, I don't know, even know his name, the, the wiry faced commander of the militia and who is the, uh, equivalent of the new sign new recruit who only put on the uniform two weeks ago i don't know i mean this is where i mean this is where i always think analogy like the analogy with the nazis is so much about the psychology of standing by while something bad happens uh and 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 both and and also seeing power shift and jumping in new directions that even you know are morally wrong, but you're willing to trade it for power or all of the, like those things are a lot of those psychological aspects. I think are are good analogies because like the thing I think is I'm always like, well, this isn't. I don't think this is like um, Nazi Germany. It's only that what I see happening is I could understand the psychology of how it did happen. Uh, watching modern politics over the last few years. Yes, all Nazi analogies are wrong. Yeah, They're analogizable to nothing. They were uniquely, they were they were unique in in their degree of evil. That said, studying them is a great way to study the phenomenon of evil. That's right. Um, that's right. And so uh, there's a there's a few uh, there's a few other just quick points I want to hit here. Uh, Kurt asking Barrio to help him die um, is is interesting um, and convenient for Barrio if if Kurt uh, just didn't you know. Can I just say this is this is a, this is this is a little bit mean, but there's part of me that like Kurt is just imagining a future where he can say nothing. He can basically lie there, and Lucienne's just gonna like talk at him, and he's just like, "Kill me now." Like, I, I, I don't want to, there's, a, it's, anyway, it's all very sad. It would um, be like a focus group. <laughs> yeah, it might be. Uh, and then the other character who's back, uh, Ezekiel Cohen shows up. Uh, does, nice to see him again. For Sarah Meyer. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Ezekiel Cohen shows up and actually it's a pretty moving scene he, with his daughter. His daughter uh, survives the war Thanks to Merkati, uh, who also has done some good things al- alongside being a thoroughly evil motherfucker, um, and uh, and uh, of course uh, he explains to Rita uh, uh, that you know they are there thanks to Merkati, not knowing that uh, uh, that was either just what she needed to hear or just what she didn't need to hear at that particular moment. That's right. And well, what's crazy about him telling her that story is that neither of them know, but we know that he let them go because he was working off his guilt about sending Rita's mother to her death. And so that Rita is the reason that that they were given that weird reprieve and Marketee still hasn't figured out that lives are not fungible. You know, like, if you kill one person, like, it doesn't erase it if you save a different person. Yes. just want to say that's like a problem, a, a, like a moral logic problem that Marketee is, is, like, having trouble with. It is. And I think this is where the show wants to complicate things for you a little bit as you adjudicate people's culpability uh, by making them do good things as lots of people would do um, or show regret or whatever. Um, but I, I never, that's, this is where I still find myself, but they also, they show you what they did. So, you know, um, and this is why none of the, why none of the analogies, like, I don't know who the equivalent is of that person because I don't know who the person is who was actively going around shooting, right? There's nobody who was, they separated children from their parents and that was really bad. And people stood by and watched that. They, you know, there's, but 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 that's not the same. engaged in a broader project of mass murder. That's right. That's right. 
Yeah. Uh, that said, the marketees were real. The people who, you know, who had one foot in the, you know, had relationships with resistance people and were feeding them information and, you know, but were also monsters who were, you know, deporting people. That stuff really happened. And, you know, the people who came out of the war with, you know, lots of people who would vouch for them and also people who thought of them as the butcher of Villeneuve uh, is, that's a real thing. And, you know, Klaus Barbie is a famous example of that. He had, you know, resistance people who would vouch for him. Yep. Uh, Okay. I think we're going to need to wrap it up. I don't, there's, there might be a couple of things we've missed here, but I think we mostly got, mostly got it. Barrio's Uh, back. Barrio's back. Uh, It's justice is coming. Uh, It's going to be great. Uh, Well, thank you all. Uh, You should all go buy Becky's book. It's really excellent. Uh, Ben, as always, great to see you. We can't wait. You, you should come on in lieu of fun this evening. And uh, Edith, you should come on in lieu of fun this evening, uh, except for the whole being dead thing. So instead of that, take us home. Nous nous aimions bien tendrement, comme t'aimes.